0: Hey everyone! Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of NeoNewsToday.com. I'm your host Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I chat with Seamus Donahue, the Chief Growth Officer at Mataco. Mataco was founded in 2014 and offers custodial, trading, tokenization, and other blockchain-based services for financial and non-financial institutions. The team is comprised of software, security, finance, and cryptography specialists with years of experience in the banking, technology, and IT sectors. In this conversation, Seamus and I talk about his experience in the banking sector and building trading platforms, lessons learned while working for an exchange in 2017 and 18 during the ICO token craze, how well-defined regulations positively impact crypto companies, how banks are looking into blockchain-based solutions, the outlook institutions are developing for crypto's future, how Metaco services its institutional clients, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Seamus, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we're talking with Seamus Donahue, the Chief Growth Officer at Metaco. How are you doing today, Seamus? I'm
1: great, thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. Something that I'm really excited to just delve into today is your area of expertise is uh, slightly different from a lot of folks who've come onto the pod. You collaborate and work with a lot of the institutional side of things in the space. So really excited to dig into that. But before we kind of go into that conversation, I just want to hear a little bit about your really interesting background. So before you entered the blockchain and crypto space you had a resume filled with various roles at different banks like JP Morgan and Barclays and things like that. So what was kind of your general experience in the banking sector before you went into the metals and eventually the crypto space?
1: Sure. So I joined out of university, I I joined banking. It was really... Ambition wasn't that I was excited about finance, but I I had had traveled to Japan when I was 18. I said, how can I get to Japan? I can either be an English teacher or get into finance because I knew banks let you move around globally and Japan was a popular place. So I, I basically started my career at JP Morgan. I was always on the trading side of the business. 1981 was pretty early in the derivatives space. So it was really a lot of, it was an exciting space to be because we were building products, building market mega businesses. JP was a real innovator in that space. And throughout my career, banking was really about, uh, you know, it was a pretty entrepreneurial environment where effectively you could build product. They would give you capital, risk capital to build a business around that. And uh, I did that at JP Morgan around new interest rate derivatives products that are now kind of the benchmarks in the market to um, in the interest rate space. Went to Deutsche Bank from there to continue that and build that in Asia, build interest rate products in, in India, where we launched some of the first uh, derivatives contracts in, in the rate space. Same thing in Japan, Turkey, Thailand, not Turkey. I spent 20 years in Asia. A lot of that was at uh, Deutsche Bank, Barclays, Merrill Lynch, a stint in London, and there's between So in Asia, I was ten years in Tokyo and ten years in Singapore, and and banking was fantastic. It wasn't until two thousand eight when we had the global credit crisis where banking kind of changed. Right, we went from basically a growth industry to basically a compliance industry. Probably good from a a global, you know, individual perspective, but as an employee, the things shifted. It wasn't quite as fun. So I left banking in two thousand eleven, got into the startup space. I was always a. I got very involved at Barclays around the intersection of of electronic markets and uh, and finance, or let's say technology and finance. When we elect, we basically put a lot of the distribution of our, our products onto an electronic platform, and we transformed Barclays, which at the time was, I'd say, as kind of a dusty third tier bank, into probably the leading bank in in most of the wholesale um, interbank markets and pro- in you know derivative space and and rate space. So that for me was very sort of a educational, sort of the transformational power of technology. So I tried to do the same thing for four years in the commodity space. When I launched, as you mentioned, metals, I launched a commodity trading platform, wholesale commodity trading platform, which was largely focused on institutions like banks. I worked with companies like J.B. Morgan, DBS. But building markets is tough. I spent four years doing that with an electronic platform, really gave visibility to how physical commodities are trading. And I think that was an education that uh, it may make sense to have visibility, but it doesn't necessarily what all the participants want. Visibility also drives down profit margins. So there's a certain value in opacity as far as uh, some of the participants are concerned. So I stopped that at four years and the next step was really into the the, the the crypto space. I had observed, you know, Ethereum was kicking off and a number of friends that were getting into the space. This is like 2017. So I was aware of the space, but it wasn't until I uh, was invited for drinks in uh, a bar in Singapore where I met a founder of a Swiss crypto exchange, spent a couple hours talking to me and uh, it was all about... You know this new peer-to-peer technology would revolutionize how we trade, how we exchange value. We would no longer have intermediaries, exchanges, banks, is All this was going to be gone. Um, we would have bots that would provide infinite liquidity. I thought it was completely out of his mind, and uh, the next day I actually <laughs> join his company to run run the Asia part of his uh, his exchange business. So uh, that was twenty seventeen. It was an exciting space. We, as a company, we had tokenized our equity in 2016. So we really kind of very forward-looking. The company grew from when I joined about 40 people to 250 people. This was 27, 2018. So there was we had the write-up. 2018 hit. It was a little more difficult. That was the, the, one of the big crypto winners. I continued to try to build. I was trying to build out the corporate side of that business, meaning we're trying to get banks to get involved in the space. They all thought it was a bit crazy at the time. It was a little too early to talk to banks in 2017 about this, but it didn't it did actually get me diving into the whole crypto space. And as a retail exchange, you know, I eventually asked how we did custody. And we had a couple of trusted employees in, in the Euro Mountains in Russia managing the private keys for the exchange. And that that was the start of maybe there's other, maybe there's a potential opportunity in the custody space. And that eventually led me to Matako.
0: Yeah, you've got a lot of great talking points in there. Something that really stuck out was innovation and working at banks. Those are two things you don't typically hear in the same sentence.
1: <laughs> no, I think a lot of people are perplexed when I when I said it was fun working at a bank, but it, it was a growth industry. I think any industry where it's growing and basically the uh, where where you can actually run with opportunity can be very exciting. And banks were that for a long time. It's not the case now. It's a different environment for banks. It's all about regulation and regulation and compliance, etc. Not a bad thing, but you know, it's a, it's not the same environment.
0: Yeah, a lot of people have a bad taste in their mouth from the financial crisis. I graduated from college during that time and trying to get a job afterwards was a fool's mission. Something else you mentioned is when you were running the commodities exchange, you mentioned that opacity is kind of king and that a lot of people didn't like the fact that there was not opacity. So, how does that kind of jive with these open, transparent blockchain ledgers that there's a lot of trading going on with things like DeFi?
1: Well, I think this is really where. You know, once you start looking and diving down the proverbial rabbit hole, this is what can get you so excited about the space. I mean, I think the, you know, we potentially have, I mean, if you're a little bit cynical about the way how finances work, we typically have monopolistic intermediaries in between, you know, intermediating. I mean, financial institutions play a very significant role in terms of intermediating trust, but it comes at a cost. And I think that was the the real proposition when you looked at uh crypto was you really could reinvent this space. You really could have potentially algorithms that run, you know, 247, 365 at zero marginal cost that can trustlessly and instantaneously change value. I mean, this is revolutionary. I mean, it's clear that this is really an opportunity that you could bring fairness and you know inclusivity to market space. You could everybody could have a bank account and everybody could trade with each other. I mean, as as crazy that talk in the bar that I had with a, uh, exchange CEO back in 2017, he was right. Maybe that's not necessarily the future that evolves, but that is clearly the opportunity
0: that's there. So you're saying the kind of like 24-7 protocols and algorithms running bots and all this, these kind of pros outweigh the cons of everybody being able to see the other side of the trade?
1: Well, that's a different question. I think, you know, as individuals, even as as companies, you certainly still need privacy, right? I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a way to understand what's happened on chain, but I think transactional privacy is going to be an important aspect to really get traction with this this technology and markets.
0: Cool. I want to talk about a little bit later about sort of things that might excite you like zero-knowledge proofs or anything like that moving forward. But before we do that, you are based out of Switzerland and... I'm really proud to be in Colorado because this is one of the states that's very forward thinking when it comes to cryptocurrency and blockchain legislation. So what's kind of like the vibe or the buzz like around the crypto and blockchain space in Switzerland?
1: Well, I think Switzerland is probably one of the places, particularly when you think of it from a a regulated finance place that uh, has been really very forward looking. They've got a head of government, they've got a regulator here, which is uh, FINMA, that really saw... An opportunity to find themselves in the crypto in the blockchain and, and digital asset space. And they had regulation very early on that really provided a, let's say, a clear taxonomy and, and regulatory framework where institutions could build. And that basically sparked a lot of the startup scene here. It's pretty vibrant. And I think it's been a kind of, let's say, a model for other markets like Singapore followed very quickly in that. We've seen regulators in Germany kind of very much follow in Switsteps. And when you define a clear regulatory framework and and a potentially a license regime, if that's the model they follow, I think you've seen that there's a lot of innovation that follows. So it's been a great space. I mean, I think the banking community as a whole in Switzerland is a bit slower moving. So I think a lot of the opportunities when, in the startup space have been outside of Switzerland because the banks, you know, the banks here are, are famous for being conservative. And uh, technology hasn't necessarily been the USP. The big industry in in, in uh, Switzerland has been private wealth, private banking much more, more of a, a secrecy industry as opposed to a technology innovation industry. But I think even they are starting to embrace the opportunity here and, and starting to build in this space.
0: Yeah, because you have uh, Zug, which is, what is it? The the Crypto Valley?
1: Yeah, correct. Zug's one of the cantons just beside Zurich, where very much the at a, at a cantonal level, there's been a lot of innovation. And you've had some of the uh, very, uh, let's say, pioneering companies like Bitcoin Swiss set up there. It's a low tax region as well. So that's also helped to contribute to the the build
0: out of the space. And so when you're looking at uh, Zug and, and Zurich, just kind of rough estimates during the past year, the markets haven't been super favorable to people who have entered. But if you look at like the long term trend, you see the amount of crypto companies kind of going up and to the right. What's sort of the trend that you're seeing in Zurich and Zug with crypto companies that are locating there? Are new companies formulating at the same rate as they were two to three years ago? Was it just like a slow kind of matriculation? What's your perspective on that? Well, maybe I'll just step
1: back for a second and say that you know, as Metaco itself is not actually based in that region. I mean, we're actually the two big regions: in Switzerland are the the Swiss Romand, which is the French region, and then the German speaking region. So Zurich and Zug are in the German speaking region. So as a company, Metaco, we we are based in Lausanne, which is just uh, down the lake from Geneva. So we're a little bit di- outside of the specific Crypto Valley region. I, so I can't comment specifically on the developments there because we're we're a little bit removed and we're much more active internationally than we are there at kind of the local local scene, let's say. What I would say anecdotally, though, is I think like anywhere, I think if you're a pure crypto native business, you know, since the peak in uh, 2021, it's been tough. You know, volumes are down. I think there's been a lot more... Uh, apprehension about digitally native cryptocurrencies. Um, there's been concerns with all the follow-up we've had from 3AC and FTX. So I think there's no question that what the, the impact and the cuts we've seen elsewhere are impacting businesses here, particularly those that are focused on purely, the, let's say, the, the crypto-native side of the business.
0: Yeah, and thanks for clarifying that. I, I, I was just asking uh, for Seamus's perspective, not for Matakos, so. Oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> I appreciate that. So uh, after you left the banking sector, You started a company that was focused on uh, precious metals, physical custody solutions that also parlayed into another company that you started that was focused more on like open architecture technology for this space as well. So I'm curious if your ability to kind of like grok and understand the things that like cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum offered, the self-custody, sort of self-sovereignty, would you have had the same opinion Hearing about these from that C- the CEO of the, the exchange in 2017, would you have had the same opinion if you stayed in the banking sector and didn't go into the precious metal space?
1: Well, having spent as long as I did in, in the banking space, you know, I talked earlier about opacity. I mean, I you know, I sat very close to structured products businesses, which are effectively combinations of different financial instruments to create a certain outcome that an investors are looking for. And one of the key USPs. Of those products is the the client doesn't really understand what they're buying basically right so they can build a lot of margin in um and the bank then hedges it and walks in you know three four five percent so to me i I have having spent so much time in that business it was very clear that uh banks do perform a role but i think up until 2008 there was kind of an excess there was too much financialization I mean obviously we swing the pendulum swings both ways, but I mean the industry was over leveraged it was all about uh, you know maximizing profit it was all about in, the, the maximizing the profits for employees in particular not necessarily shareholders, which is why the banks went through a very tough time so you know I think it was pretty clear that uh, banks at the time weren't necessarily serving the individual investor it was really about maximizing the return they could get from the individual investor. So I think early on in 2000, I started investing in a thing. And I, you could see how how leveraged the industry was going. You could see how it, it leveraged corporates were getting in the same space as were countries. And I started investing in gold in, in you know, the early 2000s, basically around when Bank of England started selling out the last, last holdings of their gold. So at, at that kind of stage, it was kind of education about what is the hedge against the financial industry? So was, my mindset was already around investing in real assets that actually had some sort of tangible value. That wasn't completely financialized. Now gold is obviously financialized. There's a big paper market, but it's still a reserve asset. It still has. I was based in Asia for a long time, and it, unlike the West, where gold seems to be, you buy a low carat jewelry for your your wife or girlfriend every once in a while. In Asia, jewelry is like an investment. It's 24 carats. You buy it by the gram. It's got a market price. Gold is at the forefront of most people's minds. So it's. I was in an environment where gold was basically an alternative investment that was very much. Out the hedge outside the financial industry. So to your point, when I when it got to the point where I left banking because things weren't moving anymore, it was all about compliance. I was in, it was in a zero-rate environment. It wasn't very exciting. There was much volatility. And thinking about what to do next, I gravitated towards a, a, an industry which I thought was already one from an asset class perspective I wanted to be exposed to, which was precious metals. And then I had my background technology basically saw that there was also a problem to potentially solve there. So when eventually I did get exposed to things like Bitcoin, it wasn't a very big leap to think about physical gold to digital gold, if you want to call it that.
0: Yeah. And, and I remember in the early 2000s, like if you were hearing about gold investing here in the States, it was from a gold bug who was on a public radio show who kind of sounded like well of the mining. they had a tinfoil <laughs> hat on. So was that kind of the similar vibe in your neck of the woods? What was that sort of contrarian take on investing into gold in the early 2000s when uh, stocks only go up?
1: Well, of course, why would you invest in gold? I mean, if you were based in the U.S., nobody had an allocation over 1%, basically. It was, as you say, it was those that were a little bit uh, prepper or, or tin hats. But if you look at Asia, basically, it's a natural thing to invest in because most cases, or let's like, not just say Asia, but developing markets, often you have a currency that is not very, uh, it's certainly not a store of wealth, not necessarily stable either. It goes through routine crises. As I moved to Asia in 1998, that was the Asia crisis where you had things like the Thai baht, the Indonesian rupee, even... Um, the South Korean one that had fallen up, that would crashed. So I think there was an understanding in most of those markets that gold played a long-term role in terms of being an alternative currency, an alternative store of wealth. So you can look at India, where basically still it's the it's the main way that the woman in in the society, you know, has has wealth that's allocated to her, whereas all the other assets are belong to the man. The women accumulate gold jewelry and a dowry, and they hand that off to their their daughters. And that's all twenty. You know, it's high carat gold. Basically, it's basically a port- effectively their investment portfolio, long term value investment portfolio. So it's very much part of the mainstream. It wasn't a fringe at all. So I think that's where my education was a, very, a little bit different from that perspective.
0: Interesting. And you mentioned earlier that uh, while you were transitioning into the crypto and blockchain space, that you worked at an exchange in 2017. So. What was it like to be at uh, an exchange? This is your first time entering a brand new industry and it's a parabolic market because of the ICO boom. What were some of the lessons that you took away from that, both positive and negative?
1: Well, I worked for a Swiss cryptic, a Swiss exchange that was called Lykke, L-Y-K-K-E, which was, uh, I think it was one of the early, early retail exchanges. I mean, I think, um, as you said, it was a very exciting time because... Assets were going parabolic. ICOs were something new. There were obviously every day there was new ICOs, new record raises. You know, it was the first time it really been in, in one was an experimental asset class with also an organization that had, a let's say, an experimental sort of organizational structure. The founder really took this idea of a new, you know, future economy into the way he also operated his business. He had a vision basically that as a Corporate, uh, as a CEO, his job was to basically plant seeds and, and provide resources and nurture and everything could grow on its own. So it's kind of this very decentralized management framework, which was also super exciting. You had a lot of autonomy. You could do what you want. You build businesses. And it's fine when resources are infinite. The thing you did learn about that was also when resource infinity, when resources are no longer infinite, and you hit, you know, you hit with the hard reality that you need to fund a business, you need to have an eventual road to profitability, that uh, you probably shouldn't experiment with asset class business model at the same time. Uh, you should probably have some things that are tried and trued and uh, and iterate slowly rather than everything. It was my first, uh, let's say, pure startup space, and uh, effectively we were we were all startups in a startup. So I think uh, it definitely was an education about how to do things prudently in, a, in an environment that can move very rapidly. And just, as you remarked, there can be a lot of excess and you get caught up in that. Same thing we, we've seen in the last few years. I mean, 2021, 20, again, funding companies were raising at 200 times annual recurring revenues with no profitability in sight. And now those those levels have crashed, you know, 90% probably, right? So things can turn when you least expect it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And being able to, plan for a rainy day, it's it's really hard when you're seeing nothing but stars, the moon, and rainbows. Absolutely.
1: I mean, it's hard to execute in a startup space. We were... were,
0: When I joined, I think we had 14,000
1: retail clients. We got that up to about 40,000. And it seemed like a reasonable success, but Coinbase emerged around the same time and they were adding that same number per day. So... There was a lot of competition in our space as well. And I think one of the key things is you need to be differentiated. You need to have uh, some USPs that stand out. And I think that, that was another thing about being very, being, being uh, having kind of no USPs in a crowded space, other than just having an exciting vision wasn't enough. You need to really have the to around your business. That was another key
0: learning. Is Lucas still up and running or is everyone on to greener pastures?
1: I think most people aren't in Greener Pastures. It was a great... Uh, There's a lot of good alumni in the market. Let's put it that way.
0: Awesome. And so you ultimately landed at Mataco, and you've had various roles there. It seems like you've made your way up the ranks. So what have your various different experiences at the different branches for Metaco been like as you've moved up?
1: Well, maybe we'll just describe what the company does to put some context to that. So. My experience was, I was always in the institutional market and I was work for banks. So a lot of businesses selling to other banks, selling to you know large financial institutions, hedge funds, et cetera. When I joined Metaco, Metaco was about 17 people. They were focused on the vision of the company. Adrian Tricani, the founder, had a vision that the pure, let's say, pure, the same vision I described the other, the pure crypto promise was basically be your own bank. Everybody could be on a bank. Everything would be tokenized and uh, everything would be peer to peer. I think he had a vision that uh, that's possible. That's probably one vision of the future, but also had a view that basically this technology would be embraced by the financial sector. They would want to get involved in the asset classes. They also would view that they could basically potentially reinvent their own technology stack to embrace tokenization across all asset classes. They are the the main custodian for every other asset class right now. So it could, could have a profound impact on their infrastructure. And nobody was building building for that use case. Everyone was really saying the banks are dead, disrupt the banks. So the core proposition was really to build a product for banks, for financial institutions to enable them to build a digital asset offering, starting with cryptocurrencies, but you know, more importantly, build it eventually migrate the entire bank into this new technology stack, which was about public ledgers, basically. Right. right. When I joined, there were about 17 people in the company. Everybody was a tech, let's say a dev. So it was Adrian and I basically trying to sell the product, and it was early stage of the product to the banking community. So it was really about commercializing the product, working on product market fit. Um, we had some early, some great early clients like DBS and Stan Charter Bank, and who helped us in some instances co-build the product um, in terms of you know build specific capabilities around things like cold storage. We worked with uh, Stan Charter Bank around uh, a full what we call our orchestration layer. I mean, you can think about policies in the how you manage keys? Everyone has a, a policy there. You can have a, a multi-sig. You can have MPC. Typically, these are about some sort of distributor approval about you know lead, signing the ledger. Basically, but you think of how banks operate. They don't just have a two of three or a three of five process. They have a much more complex internal sort of uh, policy framework for how you know how users are set up, how users get permissions, you know how a transactions are built, how a transactions approved, how transactions everything has a process. And you want to ensure an organization that it's not just one person that holds all the all the power. there's no super admin, there's no single approver for anything so really, our core proposition, which one of the core propositions we have now in the institutional space is something we built with Stan Charter Bank, was really a full operating let's say a full operating layer for everything you do on and off chain that's policy driven that's end and secure that it would you know longer term will enable a bank to put all their processes into our platform. Um, and be agnostic to ledger, agnostic to how the best in class tokenization engine, agnostic to trading, you know, centralized, decentralized or any web three application and be able to integrate into their, their existing infrastructure and eventually transition to be their main infrastructure. So that was the proposition. And, uh, you know, having had some great early partners to build that, we built the pipeline, I guess. And, uh, that was when I was affected in business development, ran sales. My background wasn't running sales and neither was Adrian's. And once we built the, the, pipeline we we realized we had to uh then build a sales team so I we hired a sales team I moved into partners which is really about you know Metaco now we're about a hundred people growing rapidly despite the the crypto winter. but I think even a hundred people we, you know we're facing clients like uh, Stanchard or BBVA or Citibank we work with they're huge they're huge mammoth organizations so we need ideally for scale we work with partners you know the likes of the McKinsey's the Accentures the NYs the Deloittes and I spent a lot of time building up capabilities with those type of partners. And, you know, that was a journey. I mean, again, it was felt like it was back in 2018, two years ago, trying to pitch them and why they should partner with us. In theory, they like the idea, but they don't build into their clients move. But once we started announcing clients like Citibank, for example, everybody wants to be your partner because everybody wants to work with Citibank. So I think we've built up a great portfolio now, and we've got a pipeline of, of partners covering all aspects of, you know, building target operating models, implementation, integration. We train them. And now focused very much on you know building out our marketing, building our strategy for the firm now as well. So it's been really touched everything commercial around uh, the go to market on our product.
0: Yeah. So um, that sense of like innovation you were feeling when you were at the banks, do you kind of now being on the outside, you're not inside a bank, but are you feeling that sort of innovation coming back, uh, like seeping into their minds?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I think when when I was in the banking, you know, it was it was a little bit reckless innovation, let's say, basically, because we had <laughs> unlimited capital, and unlimited risk. So that's why the 2008 was was correcting that excess. But it, it obviously went the other way. But I think from an innovation perspective, particularly from a technology innovation space, I think the banks are very forward looking now, and I think they're exciting places to be because they have budget for transformation in the space. I think that's been the big change. During COVID, oh, most budgets of the banks got cut, and I think we had some concerns that maybe we bet on the wrong horse. Maybe because digital oh, natives were all taking off, and the banks they slashed everything early stage in COVID. It wasn't until 2021, when the start of 2021, which crypto started taking off again, that banks, some banks, started announcing plans. Some banks work in herds, right? They don't want to be first, but they don't want to be last. So once some of the major leaders in the space started announcing projects, then very quickly the rest felt they had to catch up. So I think we have a situation now where the banks do understand that the underlying technology is not going away. I think that was some debate about that in 2018, 2019, 2020. And they're running on a legacy stack, legacy technology stack that's 20 to 40 years old on COBOL, on mainframes. Nobody's alive still that knows how it works. It just, they works, don't touch it, but they need to think about the next generational tech stack to migrate to. And uh, yeah, I think those jobs are people that we work with, I think have, One, they're extremely talented. I mean, they're really thinking very far down the road. And I think when, you know, there's often talks that banks will never touch DeFi, they'll never, you know, crypto is a no go. Banks are experimenting in the space. They may not be going straight into completely open DeFi. But they look at the proposition of DeFi and they can see how they can eventually reinvent their technology stack. I mean, the banks, one of the banks' main roles is intermediation. As we talked earlier, if you an algorithm that can do that 24 7, 365, zero marginal cost, they're going to be interested. There's some things that are still hiccups like you know, digital identity. You want to tie that on. You need a settlement lake to a lot of trades. So you don't have a digital currency, whatever you want to call that. Stable coins, they're starting. They're obviously an emerging asset class that's growing rapidly. But, um, you know, I, I think the banks, the banking space, they have a budget, and I, I think those that are in this space are excited, and they are they are innovating. I think we've got some real leadership in that space in the banking space, and particularly when you look at jurisdictions where the regulation is uh, is well defined, Germany, all the banks are building. There's some great plans there to go to market, tokenize things like securities. We're seeing the same thing in, in Europe. We've got we work with companies like uh and Forge which has built a capital markets business on-chain, on public chain, which is, I think, again, they've recently done some fundraisers with uh, MakerDAO. The bank's pushing envelopes and pushing the envelope in this space.
0: Cool. I want to talk more about Metaco and the products and offerings, but I want to kind of circumvent that and just kind of talk about some high-level things. So hopefully by the time we get to the services and the product offerings, it's easy to just kind of like plug and play. The example you just used was that uh, MakerDAO and that banks are starting to look on-chain, what are the chains they're looking at? Is it the chains that have been around for a long time? Are we talking like basically just Ethereum when it comes to implementing DeFi and smart contract protocols? That's a great question. I think we've seen an evolution. I
1: mean, I think um, two years ago, it was a bit of everything. Everything seemed new, and I don't think there was any real concentration where they're looking. We had a lot of projects looking at, Maker- at, uh, at Polkadot, at uh, other new chains, Stellar and things. I would say now it's basically EVM compatible chains. You know, if Ethereum is a layer one, looking at uh, things like Polygon. I think the EVM in the banking space is really dominating right now.
0: Gotcha. And so you brought this up also earlier, talking about various different regulations, but being here in the States, it's such a fight. Are we going to have good regulation? Are we going to have bad regulation? And there are other countries that just seem to be doing it right. So, what do you think are the countries that have sort of the best guidelines for regulations, and what does that look like?
1: I touched on it earlier. I think places like Switzerland, Finma, have, have done a great job of defining what is and what isn't a security. You know, having a clear taxonomy around different um, classifications of what of assets, assets and the licensing regime associated with them. Germany now has a very clear regime around licensing custodians, electronic registrar for securities. Um, so you can actually issue a totally digital native security now, which obviously is a uh, revolutionary in the financial space, let's say, for what's pretty much a, a labor-intensive paper-based process. Places like Singapore, I think, are have really taken it to the next level where they have things like Project Guardian, which is experimenting with things like Aave and real-world assets like JGBs to see an exchange of value versus a settlement coin. They've been very forward-looking things like Project uh, Orchid, which is like purpose-based money, effectively having money that's for specific purposes, like you know vouchers for for food or vouchers, you know, effectively very targeted you know use cases around around money, which Thunderline money is still a, a tokenized Singapore dollar, but for specific purposes. So I, th- I think it's really about clarity. If you any- if want to summarize it in one word, it's tough in the US. I mean, you've got basically, one, you have lack of clarity around who regulates the space. There's multiple regulators that have been, whether it's SEC, um, or the Fed, the FDIC, OCC. There was some form of unity earlier this year when you had the OCC, FDIC, and the Fed you know, jointly put out a letter raising caution about whether it's considered prudential banking to be involved with crypto. I think this space, there's too much happening in the space. For the banks not to lobby to get their way, eventually, I think um, the opportunity for the you know financial sector. Let's not just think about Bitcoin, but just the technology for the banks to embrace this technology. It's too big an opportunity, and I think eventually the regulators will see the light and and come to some much more business friendly approach that really allows innovation to happen. I think that that'll happen. When we talk to banks in the U.S., could be one or two years before you get that sort of clarity. So I think when instead of saying they're going public blockchains, they're building internal, looking at disruption internally first in a framework that can eventually go into, you know, public blockchain later on, you know, building things like quorum and things like that, which are eventually forward compatible with public chains.
0: Yeah. You're painting a, a picture of hope, which is it's refreshing because oftentimes, you know, when I'm sitting alone with my thoughts, I kind of wonder, are we shooting ourselves in the foot? Like, what if the US gets this wrong? This could be akin to saying no internet companies can build here in the States in the 1990s. So you don't think that we're at risk of something like that?
1: I'll never say never, but I do think senior <laughs> minds will prevail, right? I mean, politics is pretty dysfunctional these days, but I mean, I think it to a degree they follow the money and the banking lobby is pretty powerful. So I do think that eventually they'll come up with some logical policies in this space. Awesome.
0: Great to hear. So I've been full-time in the blockchain crypto space since 2018. And basically during my entire tenure, CBDCs have increasingly become more of a talking point. So I was watching one of the podcasts that you you participated on in 2020, and you kind of alluded to the recognition of CBDCs from governments across the world. So what is your just general perspective of like the wide-scale adoption of CBDCs? And are we moving closer and closer to a world where we're going to have multiple types of blockchain-based digital currencies in addition to the already digitized currencies that we see?
1: You know, I, I think this is a tough question. I think from a technology perspective, as a company, it would be great if everything was on 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 some sort of ledger, right? Because that means we have a lot more clients. As an individual, I'm not so keen about uh, you know at least retail CBDC. I mean, this is it, it strikes me the the logic behind it is not so much it's more about control than anything, I think. So I ideally hope that is in the direction we go. I think hopefully the future is much more open in terms of, I think one of the visions that I really bought into that effectively everything becomes some sort of uh, form of value that can be exchanged once it's tokenized. So we need to go through a kind of dollar settlement now because... It's the most transparent mechanism for chain exchanging value. But if eventually everything is on chain and everything is tokenized, then everything has a value. So you can just train those assets directly, right? The same way we we can trade Bitcoin versus Ethereum without going through dollars, basically, right? So it's hard to say. I mean, there's obviously projects at the Fed looking at this. There's projects in other countries looking at that. I, I can see the logic on a wholesale basis, but to a large degree, the wholesale system is already digitized. It doesn't necessarily need to be tokenized. <laughs> So I'm not sure we're really solving a problem with retail CBDCs, but I do think there's a need for some sort of tokenized uh, settlement asset. Maybe stable coins seem to be quite efficient at that. We just need to make sure we're coming up with models where the where the assets, the investors are protected, that you're not uh, just a general creditor or some fintech that basically is, uh, if things go wrong, you know those assets aren't really backing the underlying token, which is obviously a question with some of them.
0: Yeah, I appreciate the kind of illusion or the nod to the dystopian future that the CBDCs can offer because it does kind of seem like a, there could be a control element there. But at the same time, digitizing, taking the digital dollar, the digital fiat currency to the next level also seems like it could have some positive impact on society, but not necessarily on the individual, which is kind of a, a wicked problem.
1: I mean, this whole concept of purpose-based money—you can see directly when you have issues. You've got a hurricane in in New Orleans, and you need to get money to people, and you know, the banking system's down. If you could just drop it into their wallet through the through the mobile, I mean, that would be quite powerful, right? But you can see they have solutions, and having you know individuals and. In, in Bangladesh, can have a phone on their a wallet in their phone. They can build a digital, you know, a financial identity and have some sort of tokenized currency in there. I mean, already tokenized dollars enable everyone in the world to have, let's say, an offshore bank account. It's powerful, but you know, I think you need to make sure that the privacy is built in and it's real privacy. It's not something with the government as the backdoor; otherwise, it means nothing.
0: Yeah, one of the things that got me really excited from a philosophical perspective about cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, you name it was uh, banking the unbanked. And there's so much of the world that prior to the uh, launch of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies just were gatekept outside of having a bank account. So I'm just curious to hear from your perspective, what has the globalization of new market entrants represented for the institutions? Because we have just, uh, I think it was something like a third of the world was unbanked maybe 10, 15 years ago. So now we have this wave of new market entrants who can participate in global markets because they have a cell phone and a wallet and a cryptocurrency. So now that we have this new wave of new market participants, what's sort of the effects that institutions are recognizing? Are they accounting for these new market entrants?
1: I do think even the banks are thinking about this concept of inclusivity, basically. I mean, one of the problems with their existing technology stack is it's a very expensive stack to manage basically. And you can, you know, we talked to one large bank that I think just in the, in that one area that they work in, they've got 40 different sort of uh, banking systems. So effectively, you have a layer of spaghetti. And one of the objectives to move all assets onto an asset class, and sorry, one of the impacts is that every year you go through, at a bank, you go through a review of all your accounts to see whether they're profitable or not. And effectively, that cost base means the hurdle is, is quite high and banks are always shedding clients because they're no longer profitable. So I think one of the one of the reasons for the banks to look at reinventing their tech stack, moving all assets on ledger is effectively one, if you're externalizing the ledger, ledgers are expensive to manage the bank. There's a whole industry internally about reconciling what's the single source of truth in the bank, because there is no single source of truth, and reconciling that single source of truth that they somehow come up with across all the different platforms and reconciling that with others in the industry. So this industry reconciliation. This is a something that happens on a daily basis, on a month-end basis, on a quarter-end basis, on a year-end basis. It's expensive. The whole infrastructure comes with a serious running cost because of the way it's just built layer upon layer over years. So if you can move, you can rip the ledger out of a bank and put it on chain and then have basically, let's say, over time, have smart contracts to build products and service and automate services. That intermediation, the capital cost, the labor cost, and the technology cost running a bank will drop dramatically. And by definition, they can cover a much broader set of clients at a lower cost. So you can go to those markets where it's not economical to give somebody a bank account in the physical branch and send them, you know, paper based <laughs> confirmations every month. Instead, they can just have a digital wall on the phone and they can service them efficiently. I think that's a reality. That's potentially a reality where even the. Existing financial banks want to go, it enables them to scale their business and they will be able to scale profitably, which is the key point. But of course, there's obviously some others that have entered the space that have built out. You know, we've seen particularly in Africa, where there's been a lot of, you know, M Pesa and companies like that that have started with things like uh, effectively trading, you know, mobile minutes. And I think they're all moving into the tokenized space. This is demonstrating this works and it'll be embraced. And it's kind of like going from when you're building out the telecom, skipping the copper and going straight to mobile. A lot of places have very immature banking systems that don't work, and they can effectively solve that problem. And you've seen that in countries like Philippines, where the government has embraced this technology as basically transformational for their not just the banks, but for their populace. You know, if you've got thousands of islands there without branches in many cases, people are relying on Seven Elevens and remittances. I think uh, we work with one client there, Union Bank of Philippines, which has done a lot of innovation around creating uh, building settlement networks on on Ethereum, for example. Building out wallets for their their retail clients, wholesale clients, and effectively, it becomes the new banking rooms. Awesome,
0: yeah. Thanks. I think the the convoluted question was answered in there.
1: <laughs> convoluted answer for the convoluted.
0: No, it was, it was a great answer and uh, really interesting to think of as well. Something that was kind of mind bending for me was um, when I was looking into the benefits that like the continent of Africa could receive. Was simply that mobile minutes are a form of currency in many countries. Like, if you want to participate in local markets, you can trade in minutes because they have value. People want to use them for their cell phones.
1: People forget, even the US, I think there's about 5% of people who are unbanked. I mean, you can address issues at home.
0: Yeah, totally. So, we've kind of alluded to this in our conversation. If, from my perspective, if we're looking at large scale institutions, it used to be blockchain, not Bitcoin. And then the, the narrative kind of focused to Bitcoin only. And earlier you were talking about EVMs are now sort of the topic du jour of the day. So what else are banks and institutions and large scale enterprise looking at? Are they looking beyond DeFi? Are they also looking at DAOs? Are they looking at NFTs? What are some other kind of like large-scale crypto enabled sort of tokenization practices? Are they implementing?
1: Sure, I'd say the most common use case is looking at securities, so securities and the payment space. That's one of the core businesses in in, in finance, enabling helping companies raise money. You know, secondary markets for the whether it's equities or bonds. Those markets work quite well, but the issuance process is is slow and cumbersome in many countries. And there's again, it's about efficiency there, and then efficiency lowers lowers financing costs and potentially spurs innovation as a result because funding gets cheaper. So I think there's a lot of focus there. Um, we do see some companies very focused on the payment space. You've seen firms like JP Morgan, the JP Morgan coin, pretty revolutionary. I mean, they've got payment rails in infected every country and they built this, what we used to call a corporate coin, a JP Morgan coin, which uh, is like a layer two. They've got payment rails on the, on the connected in every country and you can effectively instantaneously 24-7, 365, move that JP Morgan coin a lot around for, as a kind of a global settlement coin. So that's a I mean, a very exciting use case that they, they've been doing, you know, I think in the, what we've also seen banks cover corporates and obviously they respond to corporate demand. There's a lot of interest in the corporate space around NFTs, particularly from a loyalty perspective. You've seen a lot of luxury brands in particular. We announced a deal just three weeks ago from one of the, one of the largest industrial groups in Turkey has a car company that's, let's say the Turkish equivalent of, of Tesla, Tog and they've launched uh, NFTs tied to their cars and, uh, It's been a huge success. I mean, that country is, is again, they've embraced crypto to a large degree. It's a country where gold's always been talked before about uh, gold markets and developing economies. I mean, every bank there trades gold. Every individual holds gold. The the Lira's had some tough runs at times. So they've embraced the crypto space, and NFT space is a very exciting one for them. That one, we've seen a lot more corporate interest, whether it's on consumer brands or the luxury side around the uh, NFT spaces, and the banks are responding to that as well, building capabilities in NFTs. So I think the primary ones really are the payments and, and securities from a banking perspective, but NFT is definitely emerging this year as well.
0: Very interesting. Yeah, my day job is to cover the Neo blockchain. Neo was uh, Ethereum's number one competitor in 2017, and one of the largest audiences outside of Western audiences that the Neo.org website has is actually from Turkey. So it's really interesting to kind of see the the growth in popularity of cryptocurrencies there. Um, So kind of transitioning into Mataco and orchestration and a lot of the cool products and services that you and your team offer, I did just kind of want to enter the conversation on kind of on a somber note, FTX was kind of like the golden exchange and there was a lot of trust there and it was heralded as kind of like the exchange to work with. And obviously, we've seen some potentially fraudulent actions on behalf of SBF. So my big question is, is what has the damage of reputation for cryptocurrencies or for integrating support for exchanges, what are some of the, the blowbacks that you're seeing from the FTX blow up with potential clients as you go out and talk to them?
1: Well, given Metaco covers primarily banks you know, those banks that are already productive in the crypto space have actually seen a benefit from FTX in the sense that there's been a flight to quality, let's call it basically, right? You know, people that had assets, as you said, it was unexpected. FTX was up there as one of the top, you know, Binance and FTX, both deep and liquid and efficient and kind of unbelievable it happened. But so as a result, the the trust element became a big issue. And uh, I think what was sought was, you know, those were companies with strong balance sheets, they were regulated, and I think you can look at some of the some of the banks that were in this space. They saw a big inflow of assets, and I think they actually saw their AUM grow despite the drop in asset classes. It was that it was that dramatic, basically, right? So the value dropped, but their AUM was growing. So I think that that's been one of the benefits. It's the wrong it's the wrong reasons, possibly, but I think you know one one of our views has always been that uh, you know we're going through sort of cycles in the market and I think the last, you know, last 10 years in this space has really been about innovation at all costs, basically, yeah. innovate, innovate, be agile, come up with a new thing, you know, launch Terra DeFi, for example. Don't worry so much about security or compliance. And, uh, you know, we built the same excesses that I said, we were describing earlier, That the excesses in the banking system in 2008, where there's just too much excess enthusiasm. And as a result, when things get tough, you know, when the tide goes out as a uh, um, Buffett, Buffett, thank you. As Buffett says, you see, he was swimming naked, and all the scams <laughs> come out, and that's exactly what we saw, basically, right? So, um, I think the next wave is really about some of those large institutions moving into space, the space—the traditional banks that uh, you know manage all your other asset classes—and they will add this asset class as well over time, and you will probably go, go to them to hold the asset. And you know, the, the prospect of be your own banks, i think—very promising. But I think it's not about always be your own bank. I think it's the optionality of being your own bank. You can exit the financial system the same way you can decide to hold gold, put it in your basement or however you want to do it. Ultimately, if all assets are tokenized, it's too much responsibility to carry all your assets around on your phone. You drop it in the toilet and everything's gone or you lose it. or you know, Most problems are not so much theft as you just lose your keys or lose your password. And there's no one to call to get recovery, as you know so i think ultimately the more assets get tokenized the more by definition this market will centralize in trusted entities and that's slightly controversial from the the pure crypto anarchistic view of the world but i think it's a reality i mean even in this space i don't trust myself to manage all my assets as large firms build capability they build technology i think the idea is they're they're good at managing security and they have you know they have balance sheets to back things up when things go wrong basically so I think the trend we're seeing now is these firms will move in. They will become the market definers in this space. They will set standards. Things like settlement will change. We will no longer you know, send assets directly to an exchange and have exposure to FTX. So we come up with new clearing mechanisms for that that are more consistent way. Traditional exchanges do things. So I, I think it's really going through a cycle. And the catalyst was really, well, it was kind of the end of cycle. The FTX thing it was the peak. I do think we'll see a lot more regulation and a lot more professionalism in this market now more governance more security these will not be afterthoughts and they were before
0: Yeah before I was in the crypto space I was in the city planning space and one of the perverse kind of things that really took a while for me to to grok was the more congestion your city has the better its economy is <laughs> so it's kind of negative because you're dealing with all this car congestion but that's a negative externality of like a positive event which sounds similar to FTX collapsing and this flight to security and going to the places where these entities have proven over time that custody is something that they're able to secure on behalf of the people who use their products and services
1: secure and, and ensure that there's segregation of roles i mean it's remarkable how much power was was centralized in sbf came in he sent the money out there was- there was ostensibly backdoors to a lot of things. Uh, we'll find out the, the truth of it, but you know, too much was centralized. And that's one of the key things. I mean, most of the failures here have been centralized failure risks. DeFi has been battle-tested, I think, through this process and has come out shining. So that technology, I think, is still shown it's robust. The failures have been, once again, centralized failures.
0: Well, I am curious to hear what the blowback was from the Terra collapse because... Um, and I got caught up in it myself. And it just seemed like this was like a protocol failure versus FTX, which was a custodial failure. So did you see kind of like a loss in faith in the space from your clients when Terra collapsed?
1: No, just because that was kind of the the far fringe. It was like trading. I don't know if you're familiar with CDO Squared back in 2008, but uh, it was taking like the worst part of credit, you know, real estate by credit um, and then taking punts on those. So no, we didn't really... Really see that it was more of a, a novelty because none of our clients were involved in that. You had to be deep in the weeds to really be involved there, basically, right?
0: Yeah, and just to, to caveat, when when I got wrecked, I kind of walked in wide eyed, knowing that this <laughs> might be uh, an outcome. And uh, unfortunately, this is one of the times when my negative projections was correct.
1: I think That was one of SBF's comments, and that it was on one of the uh, one of the podcasts we talked about AMMs and some. of Oh, it's all a Ponzi scheme of sorts, and that was. <laughs> There's a little too much truth telling in that one, basically, right?
0: <laughs> yes. So kind of parlaying this whole conversation into Metaco and some of the, the great things that you guys are working on. First of all, what are the verticals? You've already alluded to this as well, but what are the verticals and sectors that your clients come from?
1: We're largely financial institutions that are regulated. That's been our core proposition. And we've really focused on like the largest in that space, the tier one the banking institutions, exchanges and really providing them a foundational technology so they can build a digital asset offering. And that really means providing kind of the base layer around managing private keys. Ultimately, you're talking about assets that are tied to private keys on on a ledger of some sort. So it's really been an infrastructure that has different security models um, in the sense that uh, they're in custody. Uh, There's hardware-based security, there's multi-party computing, and we basically provide both. One of the few companies that really is agnostic to underlying underlying. Security model. Often, this is like a religious argument. Like MPC is is the future. Hardware is dead. But the reality is, our clients, particularly large financial institutions, have different use cases, and there's different use cases for both. So we we provide both, kind of agnostic to what type of hardware. So that's the base layer, and you know above that is really about how do you build your use cases. And as, as described earlier, a simple multi-sig or multi-approval, you know, three or five sort of framework whatever the underlying security is not really enough for what a financial institution, because the financial institution is really looking to put all their processes, you know, and this is risk operational uh, compliance, and there could be multiple steps. They can be very conditional. Those all need to be end-to-end secure, and they need to be very flexible in terms of how they're built in. And it's not just about what you're doing on chain that needs security. It's basically off chain because you need to hack the keys. If you can hack the users, if you set up a user with authorizations, they shouldn't have everything else could be secure when the assets are gone. We provide a framework that's effectively like a state machine that basically where you can put everything, all your process in it, and have policy-driven framework around every workflow. So what it means is you can build a use case, a payment use case. You can build a, a tokenization use case. You can build basically any use case you want. You can define all the workflows related to it, choose the type of custody model that you want, hot to air gap, cold, MPC to hardware, work with sub custody, as the case may be. So it's really... The core proposition is this flex is, is security first. And the policy driven framework I described it just enables basically a lot of optionality to build the frameworks that work today and enable the bank to scale to kind of multi jurisdictional global operation that covers different client types, different use cases, different regulatory frameworks and implement that all into a frame that can be fully automated and have conditional process that scale up. And importantly, It doesn't come saying you have to use this type of ledger. You have to use this tokenization engine. It has this front end. It's built API first and it's about EVMs popular now. There may be third generation technology. We plug that in later on. It's agnostic to ledger. You want to work with CFI now in terms of process, you know, exchanges, fine. But equally, you want to plug in DeFi and you want to interact with DeFi with. In a policy-driven way, understanding what's behind that smart contract and have governance of policies around all the, the functions of the smart contract, we deliver that. So it's really a, a very flexible framework that's designed for large institutions that want to build a foundation and to be able to scale in an open way and build their own IP on top of this as well. So it's the foundation for the new, let's say, next-generation banking system.
0: And when you have these new clients coming to talk to Metaco, are they coming in knowing what the difference between a hardware wallet is and MPC? Do they have specific questions? Is it is it a wide range of understanding of the underlying technology?
1: It's a tricky question. I think at a superficial, yes. superficial level, yes, they come in, they know. But I think um, there's a lot of competitors in this space. Kind of language gets watered down to meaning very little. To really understand the difference of Metaco versus another, you need a proper due diligence. And I think that's where Metaco is quite strong. We work, you know, some of the large firms will do just on security alone, do like a 20 hour deep dive. And that's where we typically shine and where we win. We didn't raise a billion dollars and have a half of that in our marketing budget. So if it's just about marketing, Metaco might not get chosen, but if there's actually due diligence you can differentiate. And I think that's the critical point where you can understand there's no single point of failure. It's adaptable to multiple use cases. It's flexible and it's future-proof. And these don't come through necessary marketing because marketing, everybody's got the same thing. And to your point, MPC is MPC and everyone's got a policy engine. Everyone's the highest level security. <laughs> it's very hard to differentiate at the superficial level.
0: So Metaco is seemingly quite successful. I mean, it's a five-year-old company continuing to grow, continuing to grow clients. A lot of times in the crypto space, you hear marketing, marketing, marketing needs to be done. And it doesn't seem like that is uh, Mataco's solution. So how do you guys find that you onboard new clients without these massive marketing budgets? Well, we do
1: market, but we're very targeted. So as you, you mentioned before off, offline, I do have a podcast. We bring on some of the thought leaders in the space to talk about the issues that we know our clients are interested in. We organize, you know, events that are very targeted towards let's say the banking community, the infrastructure community that serves banks as well, because they're a number of our partners. We're not on billboards and we're not flying helicopters, you know, with our logo on it, but we we do focus on our clients and work closely with our clients we're a technology company we we work with our clients to understand the domain i mean a lot of us at the company now have deep domain experience coming from the banking space coming from you know the technology space but it's essential i mean the real value is we understand the client base we've built our solution for banks it's evolved with banks given the the knowledge we've grown so the the platform keeps improving given the as the the critical mass of client grows So it's really provided us a significant advantage to sell to the new banks because we have a deep experience already with that segment. So marketing, yeah, we could be great if we had bigger budgets. It'd be fantastic, makes everything easier. But I think we just try to focus on doing things right and focus on things like security, compliance. And that's the number one priority for our clients. And then really then working to identify their pain points and solving
0: those. And for those listening, the podcast that Seamus is talking about is called Mataco Talks. It's a really great insight into the banking and financial types of clients that Mataco works with. And so if you're a DGEN, DeFi, DAO, NFT person, it's a really awesome perspective to kind of listen to and dig in and, and hear a, a brand new, different way that folks are thinking about this space. So running very short on time, what are the next steps for Mataco? What are you excited about? And what's the best way that people can keep up to date with you and what's going on with Matako.
1: I mean, I think we're, we're despite the, the headlines, we're growing. So for us, it's really about uh, continued growth in this space. Banking space, as I said, fortunately, we've been insulated from, uh, our clients are still around. They're not all the fintech natives that have, I think it's been very tough. Has been. We've seen in the last few weeks, 20, 30% announcements of layoffs, um, announcements of layoffs of twenty thirty percent of company staff. So I think we've been very fortunate. We continue to grow in a conservative way. But uh, we continue to grow delivery capabilities, client support capabilities, and our sales capabilities and partnership capabilities. So for us, it's really about slow and steady, but continued strength. We're excited about the way the banks are looking at this space, that they're embracing underlying technology as transformation. So we're quite positive about the future. So for us, love it if more people thank you for the plug from Itaco Talks. It's a great way uh, you can sign up and you'll get regular updates of those speakers. And otherwise, uh, come to the website and uh, there's a lot of information there about the company.
0: Awesome. Well, Seamus, thank you so much for coming on to the Smart Economy Podcast. It was really refreshing to be able to dig into your side of, of the space that we're in and a part of the space that can feel foreign to those who aren't in the traditional finance and banking side. So um, thank you so much for just sharing your insights and information. It was a really fun chat.
1: Dylan, it's been great to be here. Thank you very much for the uh, the discussion and having me on. Awesome. Cheers.
0: Well, what did you think of that conversation? It was packed with insights into the blockchain and crypto space from someone who works really closely with institutions and banks. And it's really exciting to hear that banks are already experimenting with various blockchain technologies. It was also a bit surprising to hear that, from Seamus's perspective, institutions weren't phased by either the FTX custodial exchange collapse or the Terra protocol failure in 2022. And it was really refreshing to hear a positive spin on recent conversations surrounding US regulations around cryptocurrencies, and that Seamus believes the banking sector will lobby for regulations that are friendlier for business. On that note, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, Please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.